1: Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Change Physician Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kucaro, with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Melissa Katie, and today's returning guest, Dr. Paul Thomas. If you have not seen our fe- previous episode with Dr. Thomas, you definitely need to listen to that or watch it if you're on YouTube, um, where he was talking about his experiences in, direct- in creating his direct primary care practice. So, Dr. Thomas is a physician in the Detroit metro area, and he's got Plum Health direct primary care Um, Fantastic episode, but of course, we always have more to discuss than we can fit into one episode, and specifically for this one, uh, what Paul is going to be talking about is starting a direct primary care practice as an early physician, because in his case, he did it basically right out of residency, so if you're an advocate, if you're interested in sort of taking care of uh, your practice, your environment, if you are a primary care specialist, or maybe not a primary care specialist, but just interested in a new sort of business model when it comes to delivering care, this should be a great episode. And Paul, it's fantastic to have you back on The Change Physician.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome.
1: So, so let's start off. And, and um, we cu- did a couple of this, a little bit of this in the first episode, but if you can kind of just recap why you were interested in direct primary care and then how you started that journey so that you were ready to hit the ground running when you finished your residency.
2: Yeah, I, going through residency, um, as I progressed through my training, I had less and less time with my patients, and I thought the whole point of medicine was to have you know 30 minutes or an hour with each of your patients to really understand who they are. And by the end of my residency, I found out that that's not true. You typically have 15 uh, to 20 minutes at most, and uh, it feels like you're running on a treadmill or catching sand or drinking from a fire hose, whatever. Uh, metaphor you want to use and it's just not a comfortable feeling practicing medicine like that and then I looked around at my attendings who are all very good people dedicated doing medicine for the right reasons but they were always grumbling about prior authorizations and the big headaches of the day too many patients in the schedule uh, not enough time to dedicate to those individuals and then the documentation requirements and the prior authorizations and so I was thinking How can I get out of that system, but still practice medicine and still be of service to my neighbors and my community? And uh, that's when I remembered hearing about direct primary care. I set out um, in the last year of my residency program to learn as much as I could. I wrote a business plan um, in late 2015, early 2016. And then I did a road trip where I visited a couple successful direct primary care practices across the country. In March of 2016, and I graduated at the end of June 2016. And I launched my practice in November, so it was a little bit of a whirlwind. I I learned a ton in those months, um, but I ended up launching a successful practice, and that we we slowly built it into what it is today.
1: So, let's kind of delve into that a little bit here, because there's a couple things that I'm thinking would be fear-producing in a in a um, In a physician who who tends to be risk averse. Like, you know, you're already coming out and you have however many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of debt. And so now we're talking about infrastructure, uh, getting the space that you're gonna create this practice in. And then also the model itself, because it's a membership model. So you have to recruit members. So how did you, what was your initial foray there? How did you find the space that you could afford? And then how did you recruit members to your practice? Yeah, you
2: know, doctors are risk averse. Um, you know, as physicians, we're encouraged to leave no stone unturned. And then mistakes are punished on rounds and in hospitals uh, rather than celebrated as they are in the business community. And so um, having that mindset shift from, you know, a doctor to a business pl- man or a business person is important if you're planning on starting your own direct primary care practice. And I'll pick up on what you said about student loan debt. When I graduated, I had the average amount of student loan debt for a 2013 medical school graduate, and that was $170,000. And in 2019, it's $193,000. So you're looking at that debt load and trying to figure out how you can pay that down, but still practice medicine on your own terms. And so what I did is I started writing about my journey in residency and saying, I want to start this practice called Plum Health it's going to be a direct primary care service. Here's how it di- it's different. And I tried to do that every week. I wrote a new blog post. I talked about our brand. I talked about our logo, what it meant, what it means to me, how we're going to make an impact. And people started signing up. It was crazy. I, I didn't have an actual practice. I just had a web page and a blog posts every now and then. And I had a few people signing up and, um, as I had more and more people sign up, I got closer and closer to thinking I was ready to launch, and I never really did until somebody called me. Uh, it was November 8th, and they said, "Dr. Thomas, I signed up for your practice. I know you sent me an email and said you weren't officially open yet, but whatever you're going to do, you need to do it now because I just took my last pill of Lexapro. I don't have insurance. I don't have a doctor, and I need you need you to help me." And so. I ordered from my wholesale supplier like $100 worth of medications, which seemed like a a lot of money at that time. And it it delivered to me the next morning because, you know, it has overnight delivery. And I made a house call for this guy um, November 9th around, I think, one o'clock. And that was my first visit of my direct primary care practice ever. And it was the need of somebody in my community that drove me to start. And I probably never would have started unless that guy had called me out and told me to you know, get it in gear, so to speak. So um, I didn't have a space when I first started. I didn't have an office space. I was a house call doctor for the first two months of my practice. And that didn't go great. You know, I had a few people sign up throughout those first few months. But then when I, I found a practice space, I actually leased it from a school in my community. There's a school for digital technology It came with free Wi-Fi, a printer. There were some shared bathrooms down the hall. And I had this one room, 180-square-foot office that I practiced out of for the first, like, three years of my practice. And uh, it worked out great. I built up my panel over that first three years to about 550 patients. And um, I I hired a second doctor. We took over the next classroom adjacent, another 180-square-feet. And then we built out this larger, beautiful office where I'm sitting today. Uh, about three years into it.
0: Wow, um, you know that it was it was really good to hear you say because there's so many things. Even I, I can relate to this too. Is that you have ideas, you want to do certain things, and um, sometimes you start putting it out there, but then sometimes it's you know to kind of get over that that fear or that hesitation, you it's almost like it takes somebody outside yourself to help you kind of get over that, (laughs) that last little hump of anxiety or fear or hesitation or doubt. Um, And I I think that's, uh, I think it's amazing. I mean, that patient obviously (laughs) deserves credit for that, but they really, really needed you. And I think that's what kind of pulls us in a direction that we probably wouldn't do for ourselves. And um, I, I assume that there's just a momentum that kept building from there, obviously. Um, but I'm curious, when you found that location or finding a spot, did you look up certain things that were available or is it a relationship with somebody that you already had that kind of presented that opportunity? What, How did you find that?
2: Yeah, well, Detroit is unique in that. It's been medically underserved for so long, and there are very few private practice physicians in the city of Detroit. There's FQHCs, and then there's some large hospital systems and healthcare juggernauts, so to speak, in the Detroit area. So you can't really go to like, oh, medical office suite and, and buy, you know lease out a small office. It just doesn't exist. Um, there isn't that much class A medical space, and the stuff that is available is within those juggernauts. And they're not going to lease to a third-party vendor like myself. They're not going to lease to a a doctor outside of their system that doesn't, you know, bill insurance or refer in their network. And so it was a very big challenge. And that's why I leased from a school because it was a professional-ish building. It was, you know, nice enough. It was comfortable. It was in the community and it was a safe place to to start my work. And my patients felt welcomed and comfortable there. Um, And so... Uh, that space was a tremendous gift in, in being able to find that. And um, you know, it just worked out, uh, it worked out well. And I'm, I'm really happy that I was able to find that spot.
0: And to rewind from that, you obviously didn't have to have a place to actually help people in the kind of practice that you have. And the first thing you just needed to be able to do was find medications that were very inexpensive. And so I think it's interesting for New residents are figuring out how to maybe go through that process of ordering it or who to order from. How did you, um, like, can you explain kind of what people should expect if they want to establish at least that, if they're going to be making house calls?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, I bought a leather doctor's bag. It was kind of like my launch gift to myself. I, I had this uh, beautiful leather doctor's bag. I, I bought a stethoscope. You know, I have a stethoscope. I bought a uh, blood pressure cuff, pulse, pulse oximeter um you know thermometer probe and then i i bought you know boxes of gloves i set up a vendor relationship with quest diagnostics so i could you know draw blood and then send it to quest or collect urine samples uh do, you know treat people for utis and things like that send it over to quest that way um and then i worked with andameds out of out of florida and uh i set up as a you know th- them as my wholesale provider for medications. And so, you know, those key vendors are important and you can do that anytime after you establish, you know, uh, an LLC. So I had a PLLC. And one of the first steps you take is set up a, a LLC. in in our case, a PLLC, cause we're professionals, a professional limited liability corporation. And then you go to the bank, you dip, you know, it's crazy. Uh, my grandma gave me like $90 or something. Uh, for Christmas or whatever, or my birthday, I can't remember which. And I took it over to the, to the bank and deposited that 90 bucks. And that was like the first investment in plum health. And then I had a bank account with that, that, you know, small amount of money, but uh, you need that. And then you need like a tax ID number. So you, I sought out an accountant. I I paid them like $200 to set me up with a couple of things and like uh, um, a tax ID number. I set up QuickBooks so I could track all my expenses and, uh, you know, the, those are kind of like the basic bones of a functioning business. And then as you do more things, as you deliver different levels of care for different people, you need to buy different things. So I eventually bought an EKG machine and a spirometer um, from places like Henry Shine and other large, you know, supply vendors like that. And then, you know, eventually we buy like, you know, $1,700 exam table, office and you know those those things that you need but you don't need everything at once and and one of the analogies i make it's like building a a plane as you as you uh take off because you know at, at essence what we give patients is is our time and our attention you know never underestimate the power that you have with your brain and your stethoscope and then everything else you you add on to that is is a value add for your patients
1: yeah I think that's really important. And I'm also kind of looking at this from the, um, from the risk averse physician kind of lens, because what you have basically described so far, and it, I just love it, is the fact that a physician can basically cons- can create a business with very little overhead, simply with the education that they have, because you get your PL, uh, L, you know, your, your LLC is not that hard. It may be seem intimidating, but depending on your state, that's sometimes 50 bucks. And it's a little couple pages. It's really easy to do. Your tax ID. It's another thing. It's, it's, it's not your biochemistry exam. <laughs> it's pretty easy to do. If setting up a bank account. Again, there's a little bit of time in there. And then I loved, this is the first time I've ever heard of someone, you started it and you didn't even have a structure. You're doing house calls. And immediately I'm thinking, you could, anybody could do that. You could basically create a house call business from the get-go. And start building a membership model with that. And um, exactly.
2: So yeah, and then um, uh, another one I forgot to mention: med so medical malpractice. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of doctors get freaked out about this, but you know, it's it was I think fourteen hundred dollars every three months, so about I don't know four hundred thirty-three dollars every month to have, you know, medical malpractice insurance that's you know a reasonable level of coverage for a primary care physician. And that, that's significantly higher in the state of Michigan and in Detroit because Detroit's a little bit more litigious than the rest of the state. Uh, so our costs are a little bit higher because of that. So maybe even less in, for you in your state or your county, depending where you're at.
0: Yeah. And something I just wanted to add just for those listening out there is that you know, if you didn't know like how to set up an LLC or PLC, you can go to an accountant that you can establish them as a registered agent, especially if you're working out of your home to do house calls and you don't have to utilize your own personal home address for establishing that entity so that anything that's looked, they're looking up online, they're not necessarily going to find you. They'll find the registered agent for your PLLC or your LLC. And many times um, you were talking about being able to order things based on your entity as a physician, you have an NPI or a national provider identification number, but sometimes once you create an entity, many people don't know this, you might have to get a second NPI, which is more um, connected to your entity. So those are little things. They, they're just nuances that they don't take a lot of time. They're just nitpicky but uh, I wanted to insert them there because I think these are things you don't know and you just learn along the way, or you say, oops, <laughs> forgot. Yeah,
2: or, or you can set up a PO box you know, at your local, and I do local that too.
0: Yeah, exactly. post
2: office and that, that way you can have your LLC registered to that PO box until you get a physical address.
0: Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they'll try to say what's your actual physical address if you have a practice. Um, so in that case, you might be able to figure something else, but PO box are really helpful.
2: Oh, or, you know, with the rise of co-working spaces, mm-hmm. um, you can register at a co-working space and have a, you know, sometimes a membership there might be $50 a month to have a mailbox and a hot desk. You know, you can come in when you want, do some yeah. charting, do some paperwork and check your mailbox.
0: Yeah. Good point. Good point.
1: Well, let's, let's kind of go from there. So we you have like the minimal viable clinic, right? It's, <laughs> it's, you got your, your, your documentation, you have your, your, uh, your insurance, all of which we kind of talked about. Isn't this, it's not, you know, I'm going to say it's not neurosurgery. Um, the next fear I could see people having is, okay, if I'm out and I'm starting and now I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like Paul here and I'm doing house calls to start for the first couple of months, I'm just doing house calls you want to you're and you said you're building this airplane what do you know like you started with your stethoscope your blood pressure cuff like kind of the the basic stuff but I, I can see someone thinking what if i get into a scenario and i need super fancy inspiro, and in incentive spirometry here or i need i need the EKG machine what did you do in those scenarios when you didn't have that equipment right when you were starting
2: uh fortunately it didn't come up you know it like i I bought the stuff relatively early on. So I, you know, I started in November, I got the physical office in January and then I I invited everybody in my contact network, hey, come to my new office, let's schedule a time. I'd love to show you around the new office, sit down, talk about our practice and tell me what you're up to. And so I got a lot of new members that way. Once I had the, you know, office space, I started getting like 20, 25 new members each month. So we really grew rapidly after we had that physical office space. Um, and then in March I ordered the, um, uh, PFT machine. Uh, and then in March also, I ordered the, uh, EKG machine. And so I had enough revenue to, to buy those items and to, um, you know, break even, uh, in that first year. So You know, worst came to worst. If, if I needed to do something, I guess I could send somebody to the urgent care or the ER. If I, if I was really that concerned, but fortunately it didn't come up that way. Um, and I had everything
1: that I needed when I needed it. That was kind of what I was looking for because I was thinking in a a traditional practice, what do people do when they don't have the resources? Yeah.
2: There's the emergency
1: department. Yeah. Or you
2: refer and you know, you, you do your best for every patient, but you also have to make sure that everybody is, uh, safe. And if you don't have the right equipment, you have to refer them, send them to the urgent care, send them to the ER if necessary. And we all do that. You know, you know, this month, somebody comes in with a swollen leg and, uh, um, some, some, uh, concerning history of being sedentary for too long. And, you know, you might have a DVT, we got to send you over and sure enough, there it is. And, I don't have I don't have that equipment at an outpatient facility. You need to go to the emergency department, be evaluated by the vascular surgeon there to make sure that this isn't going to cause a massive PE or something like that. And so, yeah. we all face that to some degree. and your when you're first starting, that threshold may be lower. That threshold to refer out um, yeah. if, if you don't have the right equipment.
1: And I I, I I, know I'm kind of beaten on this a little bit, but I, I keep coming from this kind of fear averse kind of mindset because the other thing I can see is, if, well, if, if I have to refer out, then obviously I can't start the practice because I'm not doing a good job as a doctor. I don't have these tools. And I would argue, and I would love your your opinion on this, is even in the situations where you're referring out because you may not have the equipment, you are still providing significant value to your members through reassurance, through the evaluation, through I'm sure that you're following them through this process. Um, could you kind of comment on a little, little bit? Because I just want, you know, we don't, we don't value ourselves as physicians. I can just see a young doc saying, I can't do this unless everything is absolutely perfect. And, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I only have about 480 patients or members in my practice at this point, and I'm, you know, full. And what that allows me to do is spend time with people, develop trusting relationships, and then be there for them in their hour of greatest need. So if you cut yourself, I'm able to sew it up with a laceration repair kit that costs about $20, and I don't have to charge you for it because it's only 20 bucks. Um and if you do need to go to the hospital, I can meet you there. Um, I had a patient with a very complicated medical history who is a shut-in and he uh, eventually needed to go to the emergency department for something. So I met him there with his uh, medical records on a thumb drive. And I uh, sat down with the ER doctor at you know the large health system in the community who I knew from my medical school training. And I talked to him for about 20 minutes about all of his history and all the things that I wanted to accomplish out of his visit to the hospital because I knew he wasn't gonna get out of his house very often because of his condition. And then I talked with the family for 20 minutes in the ER and um, just went over everything and and called the internist when they were admitted to the floors every day just to make sure that they were progressing well. And then eventually they were sent to rehab and followed up with the rehab physician and the staff there. And I was that constant presence that, they, that entire interaction to make sure that nothing was lost or missed and that they had continuity of care throughout the process. And that's extremely valuable for patients, even though you can't do anything for them in the hospital, you can still remind the physician who's taking care of them that somebody's watching and that, uh, they'll get, you know, better care because of that. And then you'll be that consistent presence and that, um, Repository of medical information about their care over that uh, interaction.
0: That just gives me chills. I, I, you know, this is the way medicine should be across the country. Period. And and you, I know you, you know that you're doing something important when you said you, you're not doing anything. You're you're being such a huge advocate and enabling a continuity of care even in a different setting. That is remarkably powerful for the patients. My one question based on what you just recently said we have to tap into this is when you were going to make house calls um, Did you have a pen and paper in your your leather bag um, or did you already start with some kind of medical record? Um, no I
2: I had a medical record system. I use uh, Atlas it's a you know web-based so I could either type it up on my phone or I could pull up my laptop it was longer more complicated. And I could type into the EMR and use my phone as a hotspot Mm. and uh, document that way. Um, And then also, you know, you can take down the vital signs and put in medication orders. I could send a medication to a pharmacy if I didn't have it, you know, right from their home if they needed it um, or called in for them. You know, that's, that's all part of the package, all part of the care plan. Nice. And was
0: that expensive for you starting out?
2: No, you know, that's another thing. Oh my God, I'm going to have to get Epic. That's half a million dollars to install it in just one practice. And there are uh, EMRs or electronic medical records specifically for direct primary care practices. Um, you know, half the doctors that do this use Atlas. The other half use um, Hint Annulation. So Atlas, um, you know, it, it, it allows you to take notes, take vitals. It does a medication inventory and it has a billing platform all-in-one. So it's a nice, it's $300 a month and it's an all-in-one solution. It's easy to use. And then Hint and Alation, they have a little bit more um, you know, finesse. There's a little bit more like uh, analytics and data stuff you can do with their platforms. And uh, it's a little bit more slick, but you know, it's two separate platforms that you have to put together. And then some people add in Spruce for like a messaging application um, so there's a lot of different tools out there and that one, is, it's, a little bit more complicated on pricing. I'd say probably in the $450 range, plus they take a little percentage based on your number of patients. So, you know, it's not terribly expensive, but it's something to consider. Um, I think all in, if you, you know, if you're looking at a low overhead office, you can get by on about $5,000 a month in overhead. And then if you get into a larger office like the one I'm in now, perhaps your overhead gets to $10,000 or more, depending on your square footage and the staff that you have and all that kind of ancillary stuff. But you can run a really effective solo DPC practice in a small space by yourself for about $5,000. And if you get into a larger space and have staff, maybe it's $10,000 a month, depending on your payroll and rent.
1: And, and what's great about that though, too, is, is your infrastructure can grow as your practice grows. You're not like in a traditional medical practice where you have to invest to, you know, if you're trying to do a, a, a standard medical model and to open a practice, it is not an inexpensive venture without having, you know, and you still have to recruit all your patients. So this is a great way that you can actually start. And like you, you did, you can, you start house calls. You can start with 180 square foot face space and then grow as your practice grows. So yep. and that's one of the cool things about my practice is, um,
2: you know, my first year I was moonlighting in urgent care. I worked one weekday and one weekend day, and then I worked four days at plum health. And so <laughs> it allowed me to, you know, grow without too much stress on myself. You know, I was making a decent income at the urgent care a little bit more than I made as a resident, but not like a full attending salary, of course. And, um, it allowed me to grow from you know basically eight patients to about 125 150 patients in my first year and that allowed me to break even where i could pay myself and leave the urgent care and still run a you know have a profit every month and so just about every month we've had a you know small profit margin um, throughout the four years of running plum health and then every month we add something in either a medical assistant a larger space Another doctor, uh, etc. You know, you buy the you know the deluxe exam table or the pill counting machine or whatever it is that's going to make your job easier, and you can do it in a in kind of an incremental way where you're never really you're never drowning in debt or feeling overwhelmed by the uh, by the cost of the practice because you have a consistent revenue stream, and that is you're delivering excellent care to your patients and they want to keep you as their doctor, so they're going to continue to pay that. 50 or 70 or $90 a month or whatever your price point is to, to keep employing you as their doctor.
0: You make me um, think about how strong the case is for residents that are even contemplating direct primary care to go into it from the get go with the idea that you're used to your resident salary and it's kind of a graduated uh, entry into, you know, a, you know, a different standard of living that you could do what you said, like one or two days, maybe do a couple days a week in a way where you're not overly committed. It gives you the time to create the thing that you're worried about whether or not you could be able to afford starting a new practice, but you make some income that you can put into that new business. But as you transition and start shifting into your primary direct primary care business, it, it just seems like a smooth entry where you're gradually increasing your income or maybe just around the resident salary, depending on how much your time you're putting in outside the direct primary care and how quickly it grows. It just seems like a much more beautiful way to just start then before your standard of living <laughs> gets sure. to a certain level.
2: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's w- what I tell doctors who want to do this in my book. I wrote, I write, you know, reasons not to become a direct primary care doctor. And, you know, if it's, if you love the paycheck um, and you're risk averse, don't do direct primary care because you're not going to replicate your doctor's salary on day one of your DPC practice. And so if you're, you know, making $200,000 a year and you, you know, cut that off and start a DPC practice, it's probably going to take you at least two years to get to that full panel where you're making that kind of of income again. So um, it is easier to do it right out of residency because you don't have that. Uh, hesitation about losing that large salary because you never had it in the first place. That's right. And you can just kind of build it organically over time. Yeah. And um, it, you know, it works out in the end because then you are invested in a, in a practice that um, you'll have enough time to spend with your patients. You're not going to feel burnt out or overwhelmed because you have enough time with your, your patients and you you're practicing on your own terms, which is
1: a beautiful part of this whole equation. Yeah. And in many ways, I think, it seems like this is a safer route in so many different forms. Meaning the the there's you know, there's fear, right? But the fear is more of the unknown and uncertainty rather than um than the I'm trying to think of this. the the thing that's keeping people from from DPC is the fear of the uncertainty and the newness, versus in a standard practice, that is not a risk-free phenomenon in any way, shape, or form. If you think of somebody who's leaving residency, and you get your first contract, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to make two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand or whatever," but then I'm going to move across the country, and then we're dumb, and then we buy a house, and we do all this other stuff, and then all of a sudden you discover that all the thing they told you about in this new practice environment wasn't exactly what they told you. <laughs> you know, that maybe the, the you know the 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 fancy brochure that they gave you. Um, you know, you really don't know what a practice is like until you are actually practicing in that practice. And then now you have the non-compete clause. So now you've moved and you have these non-compete clauses that have 20, 25 to 30 miles to in the worst case scenario is a 50 mile radius around practice locations. That from personal experience seems a lot more risky than what you were talking about, where it's, you know, start slow. You, you are creating a practice that you want. You're investing some time. You're working origin care on the side. Um, that just doesn't seem nearly as much other than the fear of the unknown. It just doesn't seem as risky to, to me. And in-
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes people can get, get in bad situations because they're, you know, sold a bag of goods, so to speak, where they're thinking, Oh yeah, I'm going to easily make, you know, 250 K and I'm going to buy this big house, join the country club, buy the car I've always wanted. And then it turns out you have to see 35 patients a day to make that kind of income, and um, you are in this rat race where you can never really keep up and you're drowning in those um, you know documentation requirements and prior authorization forms. and it just is not a good feeling. And you know I've talked to doctors who f- feel this way. they feel trapped by a bad system. and I think direct primary care offers. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but it offers a better alternative, in my opinion, to um, practicing medicine on your own terms and to, to the best benefit of your patient population.
1: Yeah. So can I ask you one question, though, um, just to kind of get more nuts and bolts in here, is how then, what were your top growth strategies? Because obviously, if you're just starting out, and the concern is, I need to start joining revenue You were, um, you had the foresight to start a a blog or newsletter early on. So what, that's a fantastic, easy, wonderful way to do it. But then, then how did you grow? How did you go beyond the first eight patients? You know, you said you got all your contacts and saw your first office, but what were your, your primary growth strategies? Oh man, I did a hundred things. So are you ready?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I, I, really, I grind, I hustle, you know, they have a saying Detroit hustles harder and it's true. You know, I, I did everything I could to grow my practice. I went to networking events and I met people. I, I learned all about what they did and um, I, I took their business cards and I followed up with them. I sent everybody, I got a business card, an email, and I connected with them on LinkedIn. I sent them a note on LinkedIn Hey, I met you at this thing. Great to meet you. And so I was building just a group of people who knew who I was and what I was all about. Um, and then, uh, you know, connecting with people on Facebook and leveraging my personal Facebook page to communicate my value. And then I also, um, created a, a professional Facebook page for EPC. I created a YouTube account. I started doing videos like this and I'd record them and try to put something up every every month at least um, just to tell people how I'm doing. You can go on my YouTube channel, go back to like January, December, December uh, 2016. And you can see a video of me like with this bag of tools walking into my new one room office and being like, hey guys, this is my new office. I'm just uh taking out these shelves here. going to refinish them. going to make it look great. I'm really excited to practice in this space. I did those little things every month just to do storytelling and share about my journey and where I'm at and where I want to go and, and what, what my vision is like. Um, and then beyond that, I just went to a ton of like block clubs. I joined a Corktown Business Association. Um, and I, I got in front of as many people as I could speak in front of. I spoke at residency programs. Um, I did like the residency program circuit. I still do it every year. I go out to every residency program, just tell them what I do and why it's different. I called nursing care managers, like the discharge coordinators. And I said, listen, if you have a patient who's uninsured, who needs excellent medical care, I wrote letters to the editor for the Detroit news. I reached out to the journalists and in, in our television media, I got a couple of interviews there. Those were tremendous in getting the word out. I, I, I wrote a Ted talk. I did two Ted talks so far. TEDx Detroit, and I really just communicated why I'm doing what I'm doing, what I believe in, and why it's important. And i just done that consistently over the last four years. And that's how I grew my practice. It's just that easy.
1: (laughs) An overnight success.
2: Yeah, overnight. Tremendous, rousing, overnight success. I snapped my fingers and a genie (laughs) appeared, granted me all of these patients. And then the most important thing is delivering on your promise. On your brand promise if you you know be impeccable with your word and do what you say you're going to do and deliver excellent care to the best of your ability for every patient and even when you fall short follow up with them and ask how you can do it better next time
0: yeah well there there's some serious uh tenacity and belief um and obviously integrity that that keeps it following through um you you talked about we talked about earlier about the fear earlier I think I, I had to just mention to tie it into all this work you did is that there's that initial it's what what kind of pain are you willing to to endure what what pain is worth it to you is it the little bit of pain on the front end of the uncertainty and the amount of you know groundwork that you did to really kind of put your tentacles so to speak out everywhere so that people can receive your message and what you're doing or is it the pain on the end like you know kevin was talking about that you thought you're getting this immediate gratification of what you really wanted and needed and wanted to avert the fear and all this uncertainty but in the end you may not be creating the life you want the autonomy you want and these these limitations on where you can be and how you can practice um so uh anyway, kudos to you, because you obviously decided on the ladder um, of just putting a little bit of, I don't want to say pain, but a lot of work on the front end in order to create what you have now. So,
2: yeah, Um, I think that's, I think as doctors, we can all um, feel that, you know, pain, because, you know, I read about this in my book as well. You know, I I had a, a teacher, for a board prep who came to our medical school and was trying to like sell the whole board prep course or whatever and he gets up in front of the room and he says, you know, for your step one exam, pain now or pain later, you know, you can either suck it up and do the seven weeks of intense studying or you can live in regret of a bad board score, you know, after you take your step one. And so I think we've all faced that with the MCAT uh, with step one with, you know, applying for residency and you know, everything in our in our medical career. You know, you have to put in the kind of effort to get the reward that you want in the end. And I think direct primary care is exactly that.
1: Well said. Kevin? Not much to add other than you really hustled. And yeah. I think if, if someone did even half of what you were doing, they would be in, in great shape. So um amazing, amazing. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. I we've uh we want to be cognizant of that. I could th- feel like we could talk again for hours and hours about this stuff, because <laughs> like Melissa had commented earlier, this is really the way, well, I, I know we're preaching the cry here that this is kind of the future of, of healthcare, like who most people need an advocate and they need a primary care specialist who can be that advocate. And in the traditional medical model, that's not happening. You know we have we have great primary care docs, but they're not able to do great primary care because of time constraints and all this other onerous stuff. So this is a model I think that really it just makes a lot of sense. Seems to make a lot of sense from a consumer perspective. And what I loved about um, the the details that you provided is man, you can just start. I mean, that's just awesome. This is really not that complex. So thank you so much for coming on, uh, you know, given the details of your early practice and thank you for doing the great work that you do and continue to do and your mission with Plum Health. Um, I guess, do you have anything else that you want to advocate or say, or, or tell the listeners where they can find you or one last nugget of advice?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Dr. Paul Thomas. I'm a family physician. I believe that healthcare should be affordable and accessible. That's why I started Plum Health. Um, people asked me what the hell I was doing. So I wrote my first book about direct primary care. It's called Direct Primary Care. And then a lot of doctors asked me how I became successful in my practice. So I wrote a book called Startup DPC. Both of those are on Amazon. If you want to find me, I'm on PlumHealthDPC.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Plum Health DPC, or on YouTube, youtube.com slash PlumHealthDPC, um, you get the idea. And I'm really happy to answer any questions that any of your listeners might have. And the final piece of advice that I'll give is that it's not the decisions, it's the decisiveness. A lot of times doctors are super hesitant to make a decision because they're told no stone unturned or they're punished for mistakes like we talked about earlier, but uh, to be successful in business you have to make quick decisions before you see the full picture. And even if you're wrong, you can always go back. And you know if you pick the wrong vendor out of two good vendors, it's not the end of the world. You can always switch later.
0: Sure. Well, for those of you that missed the previous episode, you can go back and listen to Dr. Paul Thomas's full story and how he has basically brought the joy into medicine for his community and for himself, uh, specifically primary care. Um, we all could use a little bit more joy in medicine in this country. And so I would definitely heed his advice on where to find some more information. And again, thank you to Dr. Paul Thomas for joining us. I'm Dr. Melissa Cady here with my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.